So that presumably is the reason why he has stepped back from it and tried not to put his own personal mark on things. He needs to be seen to be saying, you know, uh, all hands to the pump and that kind of thing. But uh, at one remove, I think, just in case this does go badly wrong. Um, because the setbacks to other sort of signature policies that he's put forward, like the Belt and Road Initiative, for example, they reflect badly on him personally. Um, And this is, I think, probably the most serious test of his leadership so far. Hello, this is Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. My name is Alec Tokili. I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil. The other co-hosts and co-producers of this podcast are George Hoare in London and Phil Cunliffe in Canterbury, England. Hello, guys. How's it going? Hey, good. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, good. Excellent. So, coronavirus. It's the topic of this episode. We're going to discuss the history of pandemics, panics, as well as the current international management of public health. And we have two different guests who you'll hear very shortly. Um, Before I go any further, I wanted to say, if you don't follow us already on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, for that matter, we are at BungaCast in all those places. Uh, If you like what we do and you've heard us before, please consider dropping us a review. If you listen to this one and it's your first time with us and you like it, also consider giving us review what you're hearing here is a free episode we have about two of those a month uh we have another two episodes which come out a month which are patreon only ones if you are not a patron already please consider doing so it is patreon.com slash bungacast we only put out original content there uh, and it's all paywall stuff uh, recent ones have covered film in 2020 as well as one on ecofascism coming up we have episodes on singapore as a neoliberal fantasy the ongoing relevance of J.G. Ballard and cities today and why global cities are actually not very cool. So, uh, coronavirus. Yeah, uh, so, I mean, it's we're recording this uh, on Thursday the 6th, so these, these figures um, might change or will change almost certainly, but 28,000 people now infected in China and um, sadly, the doctor who um, warned early on of the risk of coronavirus, so um, uh, Li Wen Liang, has has uh, passed away today. So that's kind of uh, an, an iconic uh, victim um, yeah. who has seen a lot of outpouring of sympathy on Chinese social media. Yeah, I mean he's a he was an actual whistleblower, and the police went and harassed him for for having done so. Yeah, I mean not to mention all the images coming out of Wuhan are um, kind of genuinely dystopian of you know, high rise buildings and completely empty roads with no cars or people, or maybe just kind of one isolated person in a, um, uh, walking around in a, in a face mask. But Zizek uh, likes, likes the look of it. He, uh, he said he wanted to, he wanted to go there, didn't he? Live in, live yeah, in that he said environment. It would be, it's, uh, I think that's what, what, what was the sense of what he said? It was that, I think it was that kind of the, the reassuring character of, um, the reassuring character of dystopia, and all mm. the images coming out of Wuhan being dystopian. Um, so kind of that the when it arrives, it's kind of uh, comforting that it, when it actually arrives. Yeah, I'm not sure how comforting that is. I mean, one thing is that although it's some people want to describe it as a pandemic, it's not officially one yet, is that it's still pretty concentrated in China um, and, and specifically concentrated in one part of China. And it seems like that specific part of China, especially the city of Wuhan, has been sacrificed to save everyone else in a way um, with with serious consequences there. 
Um, and there's another thing, this thing about pandemics. I don't know if you've been following it and, and you know, I, I, as I think we'll find out, you know, the boundaries of what is a pandemic and what isn't sometimes are a little bit blurry. Um, but there's like a lot of people going around going, you know, is it a pandemic yet? You know, <laughs> which is which to me sounds like, can we panic yet? Um, pandemic hunters. They, yeah. They're kind of looking, yeah. Looking no. to ring that bell, the bell of panic. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like a, like a leprosy bell. Yeah. And maybe that's a terrible reference to use. But it is that thing that, you know, people constantly overreact and panic about these things. There's been panics in the past. Uh, and then there's always people saying, you know, also we should we should keep these in perspective, but actually trying to figure out what exactly is the correct perspective to hold, uh, you know, an outbreak of disease in uh, is often, is often hard. And, and people tend to, I think the default assumption is however bad a draconian response might be, you know, what's the worst that can happen? And maybe there are some quite severe negative consequences to, to some very draconian responses to, to disease outbreaks. It's, it's, it's always quite revealing because it's something that's supposed to be kind of like not political. Oh, it's, it, you know, it's a non-human threat. It's, you know, it's not, it's not politics. It's, it's just what the correct response is. But of course that is, um, reveals a lot about state control, about, um, various understandings and management of threats. So yeah, I think I think in to, to that extent, any any sort of global uh, worry about potential um, illness is a is a is a good way to read certain things into into global politics. Yeah, absolutely. So to learn more about this, uh, a lot more than what we can convey just discussing it here, we're going to dial up Mark Honigsbaum. Firstly, he's a medical historian and the author of. The Pandemic Century, 100 Years of Panic, Hysteria, and Hubris, uh, very appositely. And after that, we're going to talk to our good friend, friend of the podcast, Dr. Lee Jones, who's a reader at Queen Mary University. Regular listeners will have heard him on this podcast before. Uh, he's also an expert on uh, Southeast and East Asia and will enlighten us a little bit more about how the Chinese state responds to these threats, uh, how the Chinese state works, and also how international agencies like the WHO tend to respond to these diseases and what its priorities are today. So firstly, here's Mark Honigsbaum. Hi, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so let me just get started and ask you right off the bat. Uh, is it true, as you address in your book, The Pandemic Century, that the underlying rate of emergence of infectious diseases appears to be increasing? Uh, we've had just, you know, just in the century so far, SARS, swine flu, MERS, Ebola, and now this new coronavirus. So is the impression that maybe a lot of the general public has that uh, these sorts of epidemics, even pandemics, are emerging with more frequency, is that impression correct? Yes, uh, I mean, it is. I mean, I, I was careful in the book to say it, it appears to be increasing uh, because it's very difficult to know whether the, the rate of these emergence events is connected to the fact that, you know, they're actually speeding up, up and happening more frequently. It could also be partly that we're getting much better at detecting uh, novel coronaviruses, right? So um, the kind of example I, I like to use is if you go back to the, the 19th century, uh, when we didn't have like um, a diagnostic test for influenza, right? Um, people recognize influenza epidemics when you saw uh, elevated respiratory um, conditions and pneumonias and elderly age groups in wintertime. Right. But if something like the swine flu that came out of Mexico in 2009 had happened back then, we wouldn't have noticed it, quite frankly. It would have just blended in with all the other 
flu-like illnesses that visit us every winter. So I think partly it's because we've got better at detecting these things and realizing they might pose a threat. Uh, but I mean, if you just look at the fact that since um, you know the start of this century, we've had six major global health emergencies declared by the WHO. Um, and the first one, of course, which wasn't even declared a global emergency was SARS in 2002. So it does seem like we've had we're getting these more and more frequently. You know, we had SARS in 2002. We had swine flu, which was a pandemic, although it didn't turn out to be as severe as it was thought in 2009. That was followed by the West African Ebola outbreak in 2014. That We were still fighting that when, you know, the first reports of Zika emerged in northeastern Brazil, right? And by 2016, that yeah. was another uh, global emergency. Uh, and then just in the last two years, we've had two further outbreaks of Ebola in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And now there's this coronavirus, a fast moving airborne pathogen. So, I mean, this question of panics and fears is so interlaced with the history of pandemics and epidemics that it's sometimes hard to distinguish this. And then in your book, you try to make an effort of trying to spell out exactly you yeah. know, to what extent it was an overreaction. Uh, the example that you've just given of, of swine flu originating in Mexico in 2009 is one such case. Um, so, I mean, in the book, you, you address this question of um, how epidemics provoke the seeking of new knowledge, which obviously allows us as humanity to deal better with these. But at the same time, uh, they also provoke new fears. Um, and you start yeah. off with an example of, uh, of un previously unheard of shark attacks on the East Coast in the U.S., uh, provoking you know lifeguards now to scan the sea for dorsal fins, as you write. So the upshot of this all is that we seem to be living in a permanent state of anxiety about the next big one coming. Um, right. Do, do you think that there's a problem of always fighting the last war with, with epidemics? Is that one way of looking at it, that... Uh, that we're aware of the previous one and how that emerged, but then something new emerges and therefore don't respond to it appropriately. Yeah, I think it's I think it's it's all of those things you've just mentioned. Actually, I mean, the point is that um, since uh, the 1918 1919 Spanish influenza pandemic, uh, which we now know was devastating, 50 million plus people uh, died in you know three waves of disease that encircle the globe in under a year um that has now become like the sort of template for all our apocalyptic scenarios right uh, and there's a tremendous industry now uh, across the globe um, global health security is a huge industry it's built on preparing for the next epidemic or pandemic threat uh, i have to say it is largely uh, driven by the desire of um, industrialized countries to stop um, these emerging infectious diseases crossing borders uh, and, you know, getting into our networks. Um, the problem is, though, as you alluded to in, in that intro, is that our knowledge is only as good as the last outbreak, right? Uh, we only know as much as we've ascertained from the last epidemic, the last a virus, the last pathogen that we've seen and sequenced and hopefully developed uh, diagnostic tools for. Um, but the sort of lesson of the recent run of epidemics is that um, this knowledge kind of directs us towards certain targets. So, you know, we'll, in the early noughties, everyone was, was, was worried about bird flu. You know, there was, 
endless concerns about bird flu from uh, China spreading across Southeast Asia, and that that could be the one that triggers this next big pandemic like um, the Spanish flu in 1918. Then what happened is we were presented with a new pandemic virus, which was a swine flu virus from Mexico, right? Um, that was followed by Ebola. Ebola, we'd had lots of experience of Ebola. There'd been multiple outbreaks uh, across uh, equatorial Africa. Nobody expected that the Zairean strain of Ebola could pop up in West Africa. Uh, and even when it did, uh, people had never seen an Ebola virus really get to a major urban center. So that was something else that wasn't thought likely or by some experts possible. And then it did happen. So we are constantly, one of the arguments in my book is essentially that, yes, you know, science um, is a great tool. Of course, we've made huge progress and we have antibiotics, we have vaccines against all sorts of diseases now. Um, but our sort of theories of disease causation and also the laboratory tools, the techniques that we develop, uh, which are usually developed uh, to counter known threats, can also blind us to the unknown ones, which require really uh, thinking outside the box. Okay. And that's the challenge to think outside the box. Yeah. And I mean, you catalog a whole series of uh, misguided reactions, in some ways, underreactions, as well as overreactions, or again, reactions to what happened in the past, but not what might happen in the future. Is there a degree to which, and I want to come on to the actual material consequences of these, you know, especially the overreactions and the panics, but to a certain extent that we just have to maybe accept that that th these epidemics will emerge, will emerge with greater frequency, uh, and that they can never be really permanently eliminated. Uh, and no. so maybe it's just a, a sort of psychologically that there needs to be a, a better response to this and understanding that these will happen. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, we have to keep it in proportion because, um, you know, we're seeing this right now with the coronavirus outbreak. Yeah, it's a, so a lot of the fears, I mean, maybe we should get on to that. You know, a lot of the, the fears are to do with the unknown, right, to do with uncertainty. So yeah. um, science and, and public health in particular, you know, they like to, they like, we like to think that, you know, um, our expertise protects us from these things. Um, uh, you know, the public health mes messaging is always trying to say, you know, don't worry, we've got this under control. But when you have these massive unknowns, uh, you know, so at the moment, we don't know how many people are really being infected in China. We don't really have a good handle on, um, you know, how easy it is for the infection to pass person to person. You know, are there are there an iceberg of cases where people aren't um, really having pronounced illnesses or symptoms that are under the radar? So when you have all these unknowns, all this uncertainty, it's understandable uh, that um, people become concerned. And, you know, our health systems do that, right? Um, we're seeing emergency meetings and discussions every day of the week. At the same time, of course, there are all sorts of other diseases circulating, such as influenza, such as measles, and such as Ebola and DRC, yeah. which, are also, which are also causing major concern. And in some cases, many, many more deaths than we've seen so far with the coronavirus. But because we know about them, and we've seen them yeah. before, and in many cases, we have treatments or, or vaccines, they don't get the same priority uh, on the sort of these panic pre preparedness lists. Um, so it's really a function of the systems that we put in place for global health security. 
Um, so it's very much driven by that security, securitized agenda. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to certain extent, that's a good thing. But I think that is the source of the way that maybe our priorities can be skewed um, and we have to keep a sense of proportion. I mean, I want to come on to that securitized approach to it, which um, I, I think it's worth being particularly critical about that. Uh, before we get on to that, I mean, you already mentioned that, you know, we perhaps fear the wrong things for a start. How... What has tended to be the thing that most scares people about epidemics and pandemics? Because it doesn't seem to necessarily correlate to contagiousness or to spread or to gruesomeness of the symptoms or to mortality or well, that these are all different factors. You know, so, I mean, you mentioned in your chapter about Ebola that, you know, it, it seems the most frightening, but it's actually less contagious than AIDS or SARS. Uh, and the carrier of uh, Ebola tends to only affect two others, whereas it's four others for AIDS or SARS. Okay, so um, I think that um, the media and popular science writers do uh, have a responsibility. Uh, you know, so, some diseases are more graphic. They can be portrayed in, you know, for want of a better word, Hollywood hammer terms as, you know, these fearful sort of um, terrifying diseases from the heart of darkness. So Ebola was one such disease, you know. Um, the book, The Hot Zone, which was the first many people learned of Ebola uh, back in the 90s, portrayed it as this terrifying disease where you bring up all these bloody, bodily fluids and people were walking viral bombs. Uh, you know, the metaphor of the shark was used there. It was a molecular shark, this virus. <laughs> right. But but what, we, what we've learned uh, during the West African outbreak is, is that there are a range of symptoms. Uh, um, some people, it appears, can have Ebola without really having pronounced illnesses. Uh, of course, some people do have these, these terrifying, um, and, you know, for people who are severely ill, it, it, it is a horrific thing, but it's a blood-borne infection. Um, it doesn't spread very far, uh, certainly not in a way that an aerosol infection uh, does, and we, we discover we can contain it with good barrier nursing, right? Um, AIDS, if you remember at the beginning of AIDS, was similarly terrifying. Um, you know, in my country, in the United Kingdom, the government messaging was tombstones falling and, you know, it, it was all the sort of images of apocalypse. Um, but, you know, the fact is that, you know, yes, AIDS was then when there was no cure or treatment, that it was a terrifying prospect uh, and people died very rapidly. And we. And those deaths were very visible, right? Because it, it was a particular community, uh, the beginning of the homosexual community or intravenous uh, drug users. And their deaths were very visible. The wasting away of bone and flesh is the sort of thing that, you know, um, repels people. Uh, you for understandable reasons, yeah. <laughs> yeah, causes people to flee. Um, influenza, though, by contrast, isn't that sort of illness. You know, when you get influenza, you're usually a bed alone uh, very few people get severe, severe symptoms. Uh, it's usually the elderly are affected. So a lot of this has got to do with what, um, you know, how visible and how graphic the symptoms are, but also what a segment of the population is attacked. So we are much more concerned and we're much more likely to fear a disease that uh, affects children or newborns. So Zika was an example, right? I mean, these, these, these awful neurological conditions we saw as a result of uh, pregnant women uh, contracting Zika uh, during their pregnancy. Um, 
likewise, any disease that picks out uh, younger age groups, so the 1918 influenza pandemic we now know, um, disproportionately killed uh, young adults in the prime of life, people between the ages of 20 and 40. Um, so those are the diseases that we feel when, you know, it's unusual, it's, it's normal for, uh, well, not normal, but, you know, it's more normal uh, for elderly people to succumb to diseases, both epidemic and, you know, familiar. Uh, but we don't expect young people in the prime of life to keel over and drop dead in the street. Mm. So, I mean, I actually wanted to zoom forward and just talk about coronavirus, this new coronavirus uh, that emerged in Wuhan in China and ask, I mean, do you think that the response so far has been appropriate? I don't I, I don't even want to talk necessarily yet uh, about the Chinese state's response uh, and okay. their attempt to quarantine, whatever. I, I want to come to that in a second, but more in terms of the international uh, global yeah. media discussion, do you think it's been proportionate? Do you think it, there's been an element of correctly recognizing what the threat is or a misrecognition? And, and you know, especially in comparison to, to some of the past examples that you treat in the book. No, no, I, I, I happen to think that, you know, it's a hard balance. But I think at the moment, uh, the director general of the WHO has got the balance about right. Um, I think we have learned from uh, the recent run of epidemics, pandemics, um, and, you know, how to strike the correct balance. Um, you know, there's been a lot of, right now, a lot of people are saying, you know, when are they going to call it a pandemic? Um, and the thing about pandemic is it's very much in the eye of the beholder. Mm. Um, you know, pandemic is a, is, a, is a medical and social construction, essentially. Um, yeah. I think that I've know, seen a lot of people asking this question, you know, when, when do we call it a pandemic? As if it were to say, when, when's the right time to panic? Are we allowed to panic yet? You know, I yeah, think. Exactly. Uh, well, that, that's the thing, you know. Um, I mean, actually, you know, calling, announcing global health emergency of an international concern really is, an, is enough of a, a signal already. And, and, and they've done that. I mean, whether or not, uh, you know, it is officially described as a pandemic probably isn't either here or there at this point in time. Um, the crucial thing is that by, you know, galvanizing the world's attention uh, with the announcement that this is now a global health emergency, what that does re really is it unlocks money. It means that, you know, and this is what we see now, that the WHO, who have stretched, tremendously stretched, fighting all sorts of other outbreaks, including polio, uh, are saying, you know, if we want to, um, you know, stop this becoming a pandemic we need to invest money now because it's very, uh, one of the big lessons from ebola and other recent runs of epidemics is it's so much more expensive to fix these things after the event not just because it's expensive in health terms uh, but because you know of the hits on the economy and financial markets that was the big lesson from sars right um, very few people fewer people uh, contracted sars than now uh, there, there were fewer than 900 deaths globally, but the economic losses, you know, $40 billion was wiped off Asian stock markets and the tourism industry in, in Hong Kong and Singapore. So that's a massive thing. We're already seeing these economic effects now play out in oil prices and falling demand because of uh, companies withdrawing from China. So this is the real, uh, the real danger that, um, you know, <laughs> In our interconnected, globalized world, it's not just that a virus can travel further and more widely than ever before. So can misinformation and, and panic about the virus, right?
No, absolutely. And I think you referred to to Susan Sontag, uh, who mm-hmm. has written about, you know, apocalypse from now on, uh, this mm-hmm. constant fear of uh of of, yeah. a pan, of of a pandemic of an apocalypse that's awaiting us at any time, and and that seems to do right. real real violence to the way that we understand these things, uh, to mm. understand and to under, the way that we interact even with one another. Um, mm. Obviously, there's the the tendency for these things to be racialized very often. Outsiders, migrants, or the subaltern uh, are charged with being dirty and infectious. And I mean, this is a, a very long history that. I mean, since the Black Death, probably when uh, the opportunity was taken to expropriate Jews for, you know, supposedly being uh, carriers of the disease and so on. Um, where do you see? I mean, firstly, I guess it's a two-parter. Uh, firstly, where do you see the sort of communi- communicational errors um, for recent pandemics, at least? Where where does the blame lie? Because I mean, there's it's very easy to blame the media. Um, it's kind of the default go-to. Uh, do, do you place it at well, a deeper level, no, even? Go on. I mean, so, so you know, I, I am a medical historian now, but I, I spent the early part of my career as a journalist, working as a science writer, uh, and I, you know, I was on the Guardian news desk in the early noughties when bird flu was spreading, um, and you know, it's very easy to shoot the messenger, but th- that's all the press is most of the time. Of mm. course, there are tabloid papers who will sensationalise and rush to print a headline saying "killer virus coming our way." Uh, well, you know, I mean, all viruses, by definition, are killers, right, for some people. Uh, so I don't think that sort of language is helpful. Likewise, as you just pointed out, I don't think it's helpful when, as a French paper did the other week, they published uh, uh, uh-huh. a tone-deaf headline. I put it that way. That's the most generous. Yeah, yeah. Yellow alert, you know, yellow alert. So we have to be careful about our language. Words matter, and they 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 matter particularly uh at times of health crises like these. Um, But actually, you know, it does start with science. It does start with the uncertainty. uh, And that is what's driving this response. It is the unknowns. Um, You know, once we, once uh, clinician epidemiologists get a measure of SARS and and they, they know exactly how it spread and what can stop it, you know, it will probably fall right down the radar. It won't be top of the news bulletins anymore. Uh, and we'll all return or, or look, be looking at the next crisis. <laughs> I mean, January, I have to say, has been a grim month so far. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to maybe talk a little bit about the origins of these things as well, um, not just the way that they're communicated. Uh, okay. Because I guess the the argument that is made about the you know the reason behind their more frequent emergence is that you have increasing contact between you know urban populations and livestock in certain places uh, or new viruses emerging because uh, previous ecological barriers get torn down so you know there's cases of of bats in jungles which uh, previously were very isolated um, or even you know deforestation uh, allowing for more communication between communities which ends up spreading uh, diseases which previously remained much more isolated Uh, there's a tendency to treat the this these occurrences as or they're more frequent occurrences as a as a sort of natural consequence of um, you know, man despoiling nature uh, and setting up this sort of man versus nature di- dichotomy. And this is, I, I mean, a kind of, a, let's say it's sort of an anti-modernist sort of strain to this, that th- this this is what humanity deserves for despoiling the environment and so on. Mm. Um, I mean, do you accept yeah, this? Do you accept that? Yeah. Sorry, go on. Do I? 
Well, I mean, do you accept this as a, as a sort of inevitability, um, you know, or is it? A, do you treat this as just a side effect of civilization's progress? Um, how do you understand this? Well, I mean, it's certainly. I think it's certainly true that um, uh, you know, there's a number of factors, both ecological factors and environmental factors, which uh, conspire to um, you know, increase the risk of uh, pathogens that used to reside in discrete uh, animal reservoirs getting into, you know, uh, the human human chain. Um, so we know uh, that something like 70, 70% of, you know, novel pathogens uh, originate in the animal kingdom, okay? Uh, the other, the other, the ones that don't are bacteria uh, that also lurk in our environment, and that you know we can disturb uh, because of things we do. So I mean, one of one of the main themes of my book is that actually, you know, um, uh, medical researchers who studied disease ecology back in the pe- people have been have noticed this for a long time. I mean, this this idea that you know it's it's ecology stupid, if I can put it that way goes back to you know the 1930s and 1940s okay the problem is that uh when you have like a laser focus on uh you know global health security agenda with developing these technological tools right whether it's um surveilling the internet using you know data mining techniques to pick up uh noise and chatter about emerging pathogens or whether it's parachuting, you know, intrepid virologists into, you know, uh, the African jungle or, or the bush to sort of take blood from chimpanzees and try and get ahead of the next big one before it emerges. All of that stuff, um, you know, distracts from the wider lessons, which are that you don't actually need uh, these high-tech um, techniques if you if you invest properly in frontline health services and horizontal, you know, health facilities. Um, so, you know, if you have a good barrier nursing, if you have running water in remote hospitals in the Democratic Republic of Congo and bleach and basic things like that, if you get diagnostic uh, tools and tests widely, so you can rapidly identify something when it emerges and stop it there before it gets from a forested region uh, to a large town or city, you're you're much better off. Um, so uh, I think these lessons tend to get forgotten. Uh, I also I also think yes. I mean it's certainly the case that because of um, you know population changes, um, uh, people flooding from the countryside to these large urban conglomerations, the mega cities in China, but also in Asia and South America are definitely creating new immunological conditions. So this is a part of the puzzle people often forget. Um, we saw this with Zika, I think, that um, when you uh, have a population who don't have immunity uh, and you create crowded, unsanitary conditions, it provides new opportunities, uh, not just for new pathogens, but for old pathogens, right? Mm, um, yeah. You know, we both have new pathogens emerging but all diseases are new places. So, I mean, that's all fascinating. And I, I wonder about the question about 
you know, in terms of responding to it, and you've already mentioned, um, you know, just well-funded healthcare being important. Um, I, I want to also here take this opportunity to be critical of the secure, securitization of, of disease, of, of pandemics, uh-huh. especially, um, where they're treated primarily as threats to, to global economic flows rather than as public health issues. Um, so, I mean, firstly, if you could make any comment about about that specifically, whether, you know, you would problematize that approach. And and secondly, ask also, you know, how prepared are we for these? Because, I mean, it seems to me, and I will profess not hardly being an expert on, on public health, but um, looking at, uh, I guess, political economy more widely, it seems that, you know, planning and coordination, economic planning, especially at the national level, has been severely diminished, you know, or the, the state's capacities to do that has been severely diminished over the past 30, 40 years, um, and the international level seems no better. And so it just seems, I mean, you know, my um, naive take would be that, you know, if that happens, if states are less able today to plan, to undertake economic planning, then how are they, how would they be able to plan for, a, you know, national emergency or international emergency, um, you know, with, with some um, epidemics such as, uh, you know, coronavirus, should it, should it spread? Okay, I mean, there's a lot of questions. So let, let me try and deliver it quite simply. So let's start with global health security. Um, so at the moment, I mean, unfortunately, global health security seems to be the best system we've 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 got. But whose global health security are we talking about? Um, so you know, if you put yourself in the position of um, someone living in a remote village in northern Democratic Republic of Congo, there are all sorts of uh, threats that they face every day, militias, but also all sorts of tropical diseases. Uh, and some of those, they're probably much more concerned. They're probably much more concerned uh, that their child might die of malaria or yeah. a diarrheal disease than of Ebola. Yet, when the global health security agenda kicks in, and suddenly there are all sorts of funds available for one disease, Ebola, people rightly ask, well, what about, why can't I get treated for these other things that, that actually I'm concerned more about and will be with me long after you've gone? Uh, so I think that's a real, real problem. We should ask, you know, whose agenda is really being served here? Um, the point about it is, though, uh, global health security is a very effective way of unlocking funds, um, both, yeah. you know, because of the systems we set up and the facilities that are in place through the World Bank, but also, you know, the Gates Foundation now because of this laser focus on wanting to demonstrate successes and triumphs. So, like, we're going to pour all of this money into polio eradication because if we eradicate it, we can say, look, this is what we can achieve when we focus on one thing. And that can be good. I mean, there there are knock-on benefits. You know, the fact that there was so much investment in polio uh, eradication in Nigeria meant there were clinicians and networks in place that very quickly stopped Ebola um, becoming a problem in Nigeria. So there are good things about it. But my concern is that uh, it's it's constantly passing around a small pot of money and having to say, well, now this gets priority and the other one drops off the radar. Now this one gets priority. Um, so, but this, this debate goes back years, you know, versus socialized medicine versus, you know, uh, vertical, uh, top down schemes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. anyway, this is the system we've got. Um, well, 
Oh, I mean, I do want to take the opportunity then to ask you one last question, very closely related to that, which is, uh, well, but let me start here. Uh, a Goldman Sachs report in 2018 uh, notoriously asked, is curing patients a sustainable business model? Um, and there is, it's very been widely discussed in the literature, you know, the profitability challenge uh, for, you know, developing things which are needed, new classes of antibiotics, new antifungal drugs, and so on. Um, so firstly, do you see the possibility for a cure for maybe not just coronaviruses, but for the wider class of uh, enteroviruses? Do you see that as likely? Uh, and do you think the conditions are there to provide for that? I mean, do you think the market will be able to provide well, for that? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, the commercial side is very difficult. So, um, you know, one of the recent successes has, has been the Ebola vaccine that, that was, you know, was trialed at the end of the epidemic in West Africa. Uh, but it took you know, I mean, it's, it's actually been licensed very quickly, but it still took quite a long time for it to get to licensure. And that was only possible because of these funds that have been set up uh, and mechanisms like Gavi, uh, where you have these public private partnerships. Um, I think the positive thing in relation to coronavirus, but also um, influenza, is that this has become a huge priority, not just for uh, private sector, but we're seeing large investments by the National Institutes of Health now in you know, making a vaccine for influenza a priority, um, very quickly trying to develop a prototype um, coronavirus vaccine that can be rolled out before the epidemic's over. See, the problem in the past is that there haven't been systems or networks in place. So one of the tragedy of SARS in 2002 is that, first of all, it took a long time to diagnose and, and, and sequence the virus. Uh, but there were mechanism platforms in place for scientists to share their knowledge and work cooperatively, because essentially the way you get ahead in science is, you know, to wait until you've done all the research and then publish and you get all the glory and kudos. Uh, so we've got better at sharing knowledge and responding more quickly. And yes, I think, uh, I think there's a very good chance we'll develop vaccines against coronavirus, but also, um, you know, hopefully within my lifetime, we will see a universal influenza vaccine, which would be a massive game changer. Uh, a diarrheal diseases, I can't say. Uh, they've been tricky in the past, but I mean, there are vaccines already. So, um, but no doubt, you know, if they're prioritized and there's enough investment, um, yeah, I think anything is possible. And that, that is the great thing about science. You know, we're better off with it than without it, for sure. Excellent. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Mark Honigsbaum, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, and uh, yeah, um, stay calm. Don't panic. <laughs> <laughs> That's always good advice. Cheers, Mark. Okay. All right. Take care. All right. So I'm joined here by Lee Jones. Uh, so Lee, how's it going, first of all? Uh, very well. And it's good to be back on. I finally yeah. managed to get you to do that uh, episode on China that I've been pushing <laughs> you to do uh, since you ever started. We, uh, it took a kind of global pandemic for you yeah, to no, agree I'm, to doing it. But, you know, I'm always glad to be on that. That's good. You should always shame your hosts right as you get started. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I approve that of, of that competitive approach <laughs> right from the off. No, that's good. That's good. You're absolutely right. We've been remiss. Uh, so we're doing China now. Obviously, this isn't the, uh, this is only the start, not the beginning, not the end. Yeah. Um, so a couple of things struck me uh, and actually seem to capture 
the global, the Chinese and the global response to the coronavirus outbreak. One is this uh, news, which has very much done the rounds, that China built a hospital in Wuhan in 10 days, or it's about to finish doing it, though it's not operational yet. At the same time, it's also imposed a lockdown on the city. Uh, the U.S.'s response has been to close its borders to arrivals from China. And the Chinese have responded to that by blaming the U.S., saying that it's uh, generating fear. So uh, for me, these kind of four different little elements capture a lot about uh, the way that coronavirus has been responded to. Um, on the one hand, it seems to capture the, the good and the bad sides of authoritarianism, as it's commonly seen. You know, the fact that you could build a hospital so quickly, that's one of the good sides of authoritarianism. The lockdown, some see that as a good thing, some see that as a bad thing, and I think we'll come on to that. Um, and also, it captures somehow the problematic international responses, because uh, the closing of borders is something that the WHO itself warns against, uh, saying that it should just carry out screenings. Uh, as well as all the panic that often accompanies these pandemics and the perennial question about whether the reaction to these pandemics uh, or just the spread of viruses is actually, in, in fact, an overreaction, which does more harm than good. So anyway, with all that, uh, Lee, first of all, what is your kind of general take on, on what the response has been? Has China responded adequately, do you think, to the outbreak? I mean, I think there's some questions over its initial response and how timely that was. Um, and that does actually relate to its authoritarianism. Uh, but then when it's when the central government, when the Politburo decided that you know this was a major outbreak and we needed to crack down on it, uh, really for the sake of the Communist Party's own self-interest in showing that it can respond effectively, then, you know, literally all the stops have been pulled out. And I think then you've got this immense overreaction, arguably, uh, and lots of kind of counterproductive activities as every part of the party state strains to look like it's responding effectively. So it goes from a situation where initially in December, eight doctors in Wuhan were arrested by the Public Security Bureau for spreading rumours online, uh, simply for saying that there was some kind of respiratory disease circulating. Um, and you know, later on, they've been vindicated uh, to suddenly, you know, sealing off whole cities, uh, extending the uh, public holidays, um, massive uh, uh, kind of shutting down of, of, of public life, of social life, and lots of kind of weird, irrational measures. I mean, people having their apartments fumigated. What for? Um, you know, that's not going to stop the disease. Um, and incredibly intrusive um, measures as well, which it's been it's been quite an education to to look at the response in the West to this. It's almost as if people are delighted that this outbreak has actually happened in China because they feel well, you know, if any state can deal with it, it must be the Chinese state. Um, but I don't think that follows at all. Actually, I think there are all kinds of dysfunctionalities of of Chinese governments, and they're all on show already from the limited amount that we do know. And I think in due course, we'll see, we'll find out a lot more about the various elements of dysfunction. Yeah, well, I mean, you say that, uh, you know, that there's been this overreaction in some regard, and it, particularly because of sensitivities over how it seemed to be reacting as well. I think maybe there's a sort of common sense notion in the West that because it's an authoritarian system, 
that the Chinese state doesn't have to worry too much about image and it can just get on with actually getting things done. Uh, what you're saying here seems to point to, some, to the opposite, that they actually are, they do a lot of authoritarian and quite draconian measures precisely as a means of being seen to be doing something rather than actually taking yeah, that, that's effective action. That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, the, the Chinese party state uh, rests very heavily on its performance legitimacy, its capacity to solve and address social problems. Um, obviously, delivering rapid e- economic growth has been one of the main pillars of that, but that's faltering. And it will go even uh, more off-piste. Um, the impact of this disease on the economy will be substantial, uh, maybe 2% this quarter. So that, that it's a big blow to its legitimacy when it seemed to be unable to tackle big issues. So the last time there was a big disease outbreak, 2003, the SARS um, epidemic, it, the, the government had covered up SARS for several months. And when it finally broke, uh, it was a massive blow to the CCP's legitimacy. And there have been a number of these kinds of health scandals relating to adulterated baby powder and a baby milk powder and that kind of stuff um, that show that the capacity of the of the the party to regulate society is weaker than it ought to be. Uh, one basically only had nationalism and performance legitimacy to uh, legitimize your rule because you certainly don't have democracy. Then it becomes a survival imperative for the CCP to be seen to be responding effectively. So they're very concerned about their image. It's quite the opposite. They need to show their own domestic population that they can respond effectively because that's what helps to keep them in power. Um, it's it's a it's almost an existential um, threat for the regime if it was unable to contain this effectively. Things like the 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 hospital. I mean, uh, this so-called hospital is really just a kind of plastic prefabricated unit. I mean, the fact that they've put it together so quickly is impressive. You know, the Chinese do have that reputation. But the flip side of that kind of authoritarian. Um, construction capacity is you know no planning procedures no local consultation whatsoever uh, which has in the in china's case more generally led to an epidemic of land grabbing by local governments and the construction of vast amounts of surplus housing and infrastructure uh, which has led to a serious economic crisis so you know there's a very simplistic way to understand the Chinese party state is, oh, they just click their fingers and, and good stuff happens. Well, you might think it's good stuff, but the more you look into it, a lot of it is not so good. Right. Yeah. And which runs contrary to the notion that authoritarian rule is necessarily more efficient. Um, this notion of performance. It's, it's highly inefficient. Or... Sorry. It, the, go ahead. The, Chinese party state, the Chinese party state is highly inefficient in lots of ways. Uh, there's, if you look at the, you know, the thing that 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 catches attention um, is China's capitalist transformation. The fact that it's industrialized in, in such a short space of time, and it is, um, you know, very dramatic and impressive in all kinds of ways. Uh, but the fact is now that there's massive overcapacity in virtually every significant industry of thirty uh, percent and upwards in some industries. Everything mm. from uh, paper and cardboard to cement to uh, construction, chemicals, all this kind of stuff. That's due to irrational levels of investment. So it, although it's famed for efficiency, that mostly comes out from people who don't know actually know very much about how China really works. 
Right. So, I mean, this big picture stuff is very important. I think we'll probably end up delving a little bit more deeply into it in a little bit. Uh, just to, like, I guess that we got the, the basics covered. Let's return a little bit to how China exactly has responded to this um, and what the sort of model is uh, that they're operating in terms of um, in, in terms of responding to threats, basically. So uh, one thing that caught my eye was that the FT uh, exclaimed, infectious disease crises require a mixture of extreme transparency and draconian controls. Um, and it might be worth unpick- like, unpicking that a little bit piece by piece. So firstly, the extreme transparency issue. I mean, as you've said, they were burned by the SARS outbreak in 2003 and the cover-up there. But obviously, uh, they haven't been especially, uh, you know, one on particularly like liberal or transparent uh, with their response now as uh, your um, reference to that cover up and, and to the to the to the um, whistleblowers that they cracked down on, uh, which is actually the, the a story about that's included in the show notes for for listeners. So on the one hand, they seem to have at least improved. I mean, that seems to be the general international response that uh, they the response is a little bit more transparent than usual. I mean, what's your take on that? And secondly, on the drac- and then maybe moving on to the draconian controls issue, uh, your take is that sometimes the, those draconian measures aren't actually necessarily that effective. Well, I think that's true. But to, I mean, I haven't read the, the FT article that you're referring to, but my s- suspicion is that what they mean by transparency is not necessarily transparency to their own citizens, but transparency to the international community in scare quotes um and the ft is correct in that sense that um governing um pandemic disease does require this strange apparently strange combination of uh, great transparency sort of openness um to the international reporting system run through the world health organization the who coupled with um, extremely repressive measures domestically to contain the disease. And basically what China is doing is exactly what the World Health Organization's international health regulations, which were issued in 2005, anticipate being hap- to happen. Because this um, is part of a kind of generalized shift towards regulatory governance, transnational regulatory governance, where domestic states and domestic state apparatuses like health um, sectors, for example, are meant to serve international purposes, not domestic purposes, primarily. So in these, in the case of these um, outbreaks, the, the, the national focal point, in this case, the, the health ministry, um, is supposed to immediately disclose what's happening, report openly. That's the transparency part. Um, but then it is meant to take measures to contain the threat domestically as much as possible to prevent it spilling over. And the the IHRs, the International Health Regulations, specify all the different things that domestic state apparatuses have to do to perform this quarantining and containment role on behalf of the wider, quote-unquote, international community. Um, and the World Health Organization sort of administers that uh, regulatory network. So the FT is right that it, it does involve these two apparently contradictory things, but they're not actually contradictory um, in the sense that what is being defended at moments like this, um, and as with the, the tackling of um, 
transboundary threats more general, um, so-called non-traditional security threats, is really the global capitalist economy. Uh, so the threat is that these these um, problems, these challenges will spread around the world and cause immense economic damage, particularly for a, for a country as you know, central to global production networks as China, um, that it could rapidly spread around the world and, and cause immense um, economic damage. And the sense that we need um, global rules, but domestic uh, enforcement and quite hard states that are able to enforce these global rules, that's widespread. Uh, that is the way that global governance actually works now through the transformation of domestic state institutions to serve these global purposes. Um, and in particular, to secure and entrench um, the well-being of the market, um, and we see that everywhere from, you know, health to economic governance, for example, with the European Union or the World Trade Organization. And people so, are being particularly sensitive in this case, precisely because of the role that China plays in in accounting for about a third of global growth. So a disturbance in China, I mean, you know. The, like in this case, literally, if China sneezes, the rest of the world gets a cold. That seems to be <laughs> yeah. driving driving a lot of the the response to this, especially because um, the disease itself, or the virus rather, uh, isn't necessarily that grave yet. Just in terms of the the mortality rate, it's two percent. Of course, these things. There's a lot of unknowns here. I think, which is precisely what causes a lot of fear around these issues, but. Um, the, the response seems to be, according to what you're saying and from what I've read, driven by let's not let's hope that nothing rocks the global economy. I think in the end, that's always the big fear with these um, pandemics. Um, and it was certainly the fear around SARS in 2003. It was the fear around bird flu in 2004, which I've written quite a lot about Um you know, with, with bird flu, for example, they thought that maybe 350 million people worldwide would be um, would die as a result of bird flu. And obviously that would be a tremendous, I mean, catastrophe for those killed, obviously. But then it was all talked in terms of, it's all talked about in terms of the, the global economic costs. Um, this time around, in terms of the severity of the disease, I mean, the, we're recording this on the 3rd, um, on the 3rd of February. And there are over 17,000 people infected. Um, only 361 people have died so far. So as you say, about 2% fatality rate. Um, but on the flip side, only 475 people have been cured. So that's about 2.7%. Um, over 2,000 are still seriously ill, about 13%. So this very early stage in a disease... We don't really know what the mortality rate is going to be because you need to look at the whole life cycle of the disease. So somebody gets it and they either die or they recover. Um, and then you work out the, the true mortality rate um, by looking at the ratio. And at the moment, we just don't know enough. There's lots of people yeah. with the disease or suspected with the disease. There's very few people relatively who have either died or have recovered from it. At the moment, the ratio of died to, to cured um, is about 40-60. Um, but I think it would be very alarmist to suggest that there'd be a 40% mortality rate when this uh, shakes out in the end. But at the same time, it is, um, you know, it's certainly spread quicker than SARS. 
Um, at the moment, it's not near the mortality rate for SARS, which was um, uh, 9.6%. Uh, but at the same time, because the spread is wider, um, it, we're already up to about half the death toll uh, with, with uh, the coronavirus. So there is, you know, this is a serious disease, but at the same time, let's put it into perspective. Um, between 300,000 and 500,000 people worldwide die of seasonal flu every year. Yeah. Uh, and, and we don't, you know, close the borders in, in relation to that. So why um, is, so then, I mean, this might be a good moment to ask, you know, why does this drive such a, maybe not, not necessarily a panicked response, but, you know, such a, you know, su- such a, a sustained global response uh, and discussion in a way that, you know, regular flu obviously doesn't because it's just something that's there that we're accustomed to. It's, is it the newness of, this disease that causes or, or is another interpretation is that there's a certain opportunism in the response that certain other motives or you know other ends are being sought when uh, when there are such overreactions to to a potential pandemic well i think that i mean l- let's start with the uh, with the less charitable response which is that the world health organization i think has been caught crying wolf over previous um, pandemics, and that's partly because the World Health Organization has been hollowed out by um, donors in the global north that have progressively sort of stripped its main um, budget away and only fund it for certain programmatic work targeted at certain diseases that are of concern to them. So, uh, so sorry, let me d- just interrupt. It might be actually be worth exploring a little bit more what the World Health Organization is and does. And how it's changed, because um, I'm, I imagine yeah. many listeners won't be familiar with what its structures are, where it fund, where its funding comes from, what its initial purpose was, what it does now, in fact. So maybe yeah, I mean, give it's, us a little it's quick part of the history. UN system, um, and you know, during the Cold War, uh, the World Health Organization was, um, you know, dedicated to eradicating certain diseases like uh, polio and smallpox and things like this. Um, and its it, its role was also about helping developing countries to establish their health systems um, after decolonization. So it was very much based on the sort of building up of independent, um, typically public healthcare systems. But uh, that purpose has been scrapped uh, after the Cold War ended and the World Health Organization has been progressively defunded um, and its purposes, you know, global health governance is now much more focused on neoliberal policy ends. So uh, due to the debt crisis of the 1980s, a lot of the public health care systems in, in the global south were hollowed out um, and private provision has been turned to and this has been very much encouraged by the World Bank and others and WHO is involved in that as are um, organizations like you know, philanthropic organizations like the Bill and, Min- Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which play a very big role now in, in global health governance. So the WHO, its role has shifted to a sort of more global regulator role and intervening to try to address and contain particular disease outbreaks that um, it, that are of concern to richer countries, that basically they want to contain these diseases and stop them spreading to their societies uh, and stop them damaging the global economy. So the the WHO uh, will get funding for particular diseases. 
like SARS or bird flu or um, AIDS, for example. Um, and so it's always in this very tricky position where it's always being starved of resources. And of course, one of the ways in which you try to draw attention to something and you try to get money for something is to talk of it in terms of security, to securitize it. Um, and so I think in the past, uh, the WHO has uh, had an interest, I think, in, in being quite alarmist about these, these outbreaks, uh, to try to call attention to this, to try to get funding to help distressed mm. developing countries, basically, where the vast majority of people who mm. actually die from these outbreaks actually live. Um, so that's the sort of more, that's one of the more cynical things that might be going on. Although in this case, I think the WHO has actually been criticised for not declaring um, a public health emergency of international concern earlier, which presumably is out of concern and deference to China um, and an understanding of its global significance uh, as a major power and as a, um, a node in the global economy. So they they discussed it and decided not to. And then a week later, they decided that they should. And quite a lot of people were saying, well, why didn't you do it earlier? So I think that's not operative in this case. But uh, there's there's an argument to say the Americans have been quite cynical about this. Um, the US Commerce Secretary um, said that the disease uh, is a good uh, reason why jobs should be brought back to the United States. Um, so that's where kind of deglobalization yeah. comes in. You know, it's just an opportunist, very opportunistic. Um, and then there is a, a total transit ban, which you know, arguably is not yet justified by the scale of the, the outbreak. Um, the, the international spread is still quite limited. Um, something like 99% of the cases are still in China. And the vast bulk of those cases are still within um, Hebei province. Um, and about half of the cases are in Wuhan. So although it has spread, um, if the data is to be believed, it's still somewhat localized. So arguably it's precipitate, um, but you know we don't know. And this is where we get onto the more you know, reasonable concerns, which is that it, it's precisely the fact that it is a new disease and we know so little about it. And there is the potential for it to spread rapidly and for mortality rates to be uh, very high uh, more than we um, more than we would like obviously um, so that's the uh, and that, there's a kind of precautionary aspect to global health governance that says you know until we know about this we should err on the side of caution uh, but adopt a sort of evidence and risk-based approach because what the WHO is always trying to do, is balance the threats to the global economy and to global public health um, with the design not to interfere with international trade and commerce. Mm, and that's an yeah. explicit goal of the, of the World Health Organization. So it's an attempt to secure the political economy in a, in a sort of rational way that doesn't overreact, that doesn't impinge on global free trade, um, but only restricts it to the, to the absolute you know, level necessary. But that's very difficult to calibrate when you don't really know what the disease is going to do, how long it incubates for, where it's spread to, etc. 
let's delve a little bit more into the question of globalization and how the global pandemic fits into it before finishing off discussing a little bit about some of the potential impacts uh, on on China, on Xi Jinping, uh, and maybe Hong Kong as well. So first on, on globalization, I mean, I was actually looking through a lot of more of the kind of uh, financial media on this in part because they seem to cover it quite extensively, uh, much more than much more so than one would expect. So uh, the FT uh, said that the spread of the epidemic amounts to an experiment in deglobalization. Uh, barriers are being put up not to halt trade and migration flows, but to stymie the spread of infection. The economic effects, however, are similar snarled up supply chains, lower business confidence, and less international trade. So, I mean, do, do you buy this, that it's this is a, an experiment in deglobalization, that in some ways that the response to this is is um, maybe presages further uh, retrenchment behind national borders or something like that? So, no, I don't buy that at all. I think it's the opposite. Um, the It's like I said earlier on, this, this, this is the system working as it should. So... Uh, there's a disease outbreak and the, the World Health Organization expects domestic states to contain the disease within their territory and prevent its global spread. And that is to avoid endangering, um, obviously, lives in other countries, um, but also to avoid endangering the global economy. And so what the World Health Organization is doing is protecting the health of the global economy. Uh, so it's not deglobalization. This is about the governance of globalization, which always happens through states, um, even when international organizations are involved, because international organizations don't run things directly. They, they don't have that kind of capacity. They rely on the states to do it for them. So the, the WHO is balancing the need for containment with the need to protect um, international trade and production networks. So the idea is, you know, try and keep global flows of people, capital goods going as much as possible um, and only take the the, the the sensible measures right that are justified by the evidence and try and find out as quickly as possible and so on so it's not it's not deglobalization um, but it's certainly true to say that um, the these kind of measures these containment measures will have a big impact on the chinese economy and through that the the, the global political economy so the the chinese stock market has been closed through the lunar new year and then um yeah, which then was extended it reopened today it immediately fell uh, 7.9% so it's the worst um fall in daily fall in four years it's wiped an estimated 358 billion dollars off the um, stock market capitalization the hong kong uh, stock index had earlier fallen 6%. The Chinese central bank has had to put in $174 billion of liquidity. Um, and they think, you know, economists are saying it's reasonable to expect a slowdown in growth of at least 2%. That would cost $60 billion in foregone growth. Uh, the, right, the government yeah. is having to put $12.6 billion into healthcare. Patients, meanwhile, are also paying their own costs. So that's just China. And then if you think about the impact on global production networks, given the existence of these just-in-time uh, production chains, uh, it, that will have a pinch uh, on the flows of certain commodities. So Tesla has had to close its factory in Shanghai. Apple has lost its suppliers in Wuhan. So, And there is some 
research uh, which is finding that the virus can survive on um, steel and other uh, non-organic uh, products All right. for up to four days. So those, so those memes about ordering some weird contraption or gadget off of Wish uh, and ending up with the coronavirus might actually be true. Well, at the moment, this is just under laboratory conditions, right? To say that we, you know, the, the virus can survive. The, the WHO has not picked this up yet. I've just checked their advice today, and they're still saying, you know, it basically dies after a short time on, um, you know, on right. uh, fabrics and things like this. So you don't need to worry about that. You can still get packages from China, um, but again. You know, it's early stages for scientific research, and uh, if if more labs can start to replicate this and find that the virus can travel through commerce, then you've got a very serious threat to um, the to global economic flows. Um, so, how I mean, the, how how is, does this get negotiated? I mean, basically, you have this securitized approach, as you've detailed, on the one hand. And this desire to keep the globalization show on the road. So when it's treated as a as a as a threat, uh, in the way that this is, rather than as a as a health issue, uh, primarily at least, uh, there is a tendency, of course, that you might need if uh, you know if the disease is transmitted in the ways that they fear it might be on non organic items, that you end up actually needing to take much more draconian measures, not in a local area, such as, you know, shutting down the city of Wuhan, which the international community probably doesn't care too much about one way or the other, uh, and actually has to start, uh, you know, imposing trade sanctions or taking other sorts of measures, um, which interfere with the free flow of trade. I mean, how do do those things get negotiated? Well, I mean, in the end, the the WHO is guided by advisory committees comprised of health experts, epidemiologists who you know, who are constantly reviewing the evidence. And of course, um, epidemiologists in China and worldwide are doing experiments on this. So they tried to go on the basis of the scientific evidence. And I stress that it's only under laboratory conditions that they've shown that this virus can survive on inanimate objects. Uh, and it may well be the case that, uh, you know, they couldn't possibly survive the, the transit on a, on a ship or a plane or anything else like that. Um, you know, that, I don't want people to panic. Um, it, but it's precisely that they look at this evidence, they look at the evidence and they try to make the best uh, advice possible. But then there are also international political um, considerations. So if this had happened somewhere different, not in China, but somewhere else, um, the WHO may have been quicker to act um, and, and declare a, a, a public uh, international health emergency uh, sooner. Um, I think the Chinese will have put a lot of pressure, I think, on the WHO not to do that um, mm. uh, and then try to convince, you know, we can sort it out. You don't need to declare this, you know, because they would know then that other states would have um, a reason, justification or an excuse, depending on your point of view, to take restrictive measures. Um which would be potentially permissible, whereas normally undertaking, say, you know, trade and travel restrictions um, would be illegal under various international conventions and rules, like the World Trade Organization, for example. So um, I think probably 
that kind of political pressure put some delay. And the World Health Organization was very careful to say when they did announce um, the public health emergency of international concern that you know this wasn't a criticism of China. This was a vote of confidence in China's capacity to contain it. Um, but they were primarily concerned about the disease spreading to countries with weaker healthcare systems. Mm. So they were, uh, and they, they were just full of praise for the extreme response, the extraordinary measures that right. um, China had taken to contain the disease. So they, they're clearly sort of trying to tread a careful line here by not displeasing the Chinese too much. So there is a political element to this. There's always that. It's not simply, you know, the experts say this and then it happens. Um, they're going to have to be very, very certain that this disease can be carried on goods to uh, consider, you know, closing down China's links to the global economy because that would have an enormous um, detrimental impact on the global economy, which is one of the things that the World Health Organization, although it's not primarily an economic institution, it's one of the things it, it, it now is established to uh, try to protect, really, um, precisely to say, you know, there are these circumstances when you can impose these kinds of restrictions and otherwise not, you know, to prevent uh, countries straying from the global uh, neoliberal settlement uh, in the name of uh, protecting health. You know, they, they're saying, you know, we decide when that happens. We decide when that's legitimate uh, so that the global economy continues to function unless we say, no, no, it's, it's gone too far. We've got to impose these restrictions. Right. So maybe just to finish off, it'd be good to discuss some of the potential uh, impact on China itself. I mean, firstly, who bears blame? Uh, a Politburo report, I think, has come out and said uh, that in response to the shortcomings and deficiencies that were exposed responding to this epidemic, we must improve our national emergency management system and improve our abilities in handling urgent and dangerous tasks. So, I mean, there's a recognition there that errors may have been made and that things need to be improved. Of course, this is all rather behind uh, behind closed doors, I guess, to, to a certain degree. Um, and it's not a, a massive mea culpa either. But who is likely to take the fall for any uh, missteps made? Uh, I think there's talk of, you know, they were, maybe this was leaked that they were going to sack the mayor of Wuhan um, for his response. How, you know, where does accountability filter down to, um, or rather filter up to, I should maybe say, uh, as a way of also getting to the question of, you know, do people blame the Chinese regime as a whole for for this um, or, you know, whether it be it for the, the crackdown or for a slow response or um, whatever it might be. I mean, how do you see that actually playing out potentially? It's a good question. I mean, the, 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 the key thing to bear in mind here is that, as I alluded to earlier on, the Chinese party state is not what you think or, or not what most people think. Uh, it's not a monolithic entity, uh, nor is it this uh, you know, perfectly functioning machine that simply conveys orders from the top to the bottom uh, and works very efficiently. It's a very fragmented uh, system with lots of different agencies, uh, often with overlapping and competing jurisdictions, very unclear laws and regulations, uh, and a lot of power is decentralized uh, down to the down to local governments and the provinces are extremely powerful. Um, uh, and furthermore, different bits of the uh, of the party state can pull very much in different directions. So I think it's fair to say that the 
the health apparatuses of the Chinese state have become much more uh, open and transparent and are now engaging in the sort in the sort of transnational regulatory governance that um, that people were chiding it for not participating in back with SARS. So we've got um, you know local provincial level health agencies, for example, in uh, Yunnan and Guangxi uh, provinces participating in this um, Mekong Basin Disease Surveillance Network, which is which tries to manage disease outbreak outbreaks in uh, China, the part of China adjacent to Southeast Asia and that part of Southeast Asia, and has transnational teams working to share information and contain disease outbreaks and so on. So I think you could say of the health institutions that they're pointing in the right direction. But then you've got other bits of the state notably the public security bit, which are pulling in the opposite direction. Um, and they're responding to growing uh, paranoia and intensifying political control in China that has happened under the rule of Xi Jinping um, that tends to see uh, enemies or potential enemies everywhere and is very concerned to avoid uh, threats to public order. And so it's the Public Security Bureau that has tried to silence these doctors locally um and the health institutions probably wanted to be more open yeah um and then the local mayor is i mean most local mayors are interested in building prestige projects and um promoting local economic growth so they hit their targets uh, and they can go on they can go on to a bigger and better job um and so the mayor of wuhan for example uh did not uh, for example uh cancel a major uh, potluck event to celebrate Lunar New Year, where I think something like 41,000 people uh, participated. So so people you know, called for his head publicly, um, but then had to retract. Uh, these were journalists saying that he, he should basically resign. Interestingly, the, the mayor of Wuhan actually blamed the central government for being right. secretive and delaying the flow of information. Um, and, and how did that go down? Well, you can imagine that didn't go down very well at all. But that is, again, pretty typical of the Chinese system, is that different tiers of the party state uh, struggle for power and resources and also try to shift blame up and down. Um, I mean, clearly, the center is very powerful and can inflict um, very severe punishments on um, on subordinates if they seem to have done something wrong. The fact they haven't immediately removed him, but they have removed some other officials who were shown to be um, incompetent during uh, inspections from central teams suggests that maybe maybe he's right. You know, maybe they realised that there were some that some issues here from the central government. Um, so there'll be a blame game, I think, that will that will work its way through. And interestingly, I mean, it's sparing nobody. So Xi Jinping is being singled out on Chinese social media and people are saying, you know, where is he? Mm. Uh, because he seems to have completely disappeared from public view. Um, the, it's the Prime Minister Li who was dispatched to Wuhan to, you know, boost the morale of the health right. workers. And, and she has basically... Guy in, the, in this, right? I suspect so. I mean, generally speaking, Xi Jinping has, has sought to put himself at the head of all the major policymaking units uh, at the national level. And there's this kind of craven 
uh, sort of hero worship that he has encouraged that you know, all good things basically stem from Xi Jinping's amazing ideas and his terrific leadership and so on. So the fact that he's not wanting to be too closely associated with this suggests that he can see the political risk uh, that, you know, if this goes wrong, the Chinese government is seen to have failed. His fingerprints can't be on it so that he can dismiss other senior people and say, well, yeah, this is the government's fault. Um, Li Keqiang, you're in charge of the government as the prime minister. You know, you're the, the head of the, the state side of things. Um, and so it's all your fault. So but that would suggest, though, that he really does see that the risk of this, that this is politically very serious for him. Uh-huh. If he gets it wrong, um, it, it could be uh, it could be very bad for him. So yeah, and, th- and there'll and be an economic the, fallout this and a political fallout as well. Yeah. No, and as you say, um, I mean, obviously, the Chinese regime is, their legitimacy is very much based on performance, as you've put it. Uh, and it, But this at the same time seems to get at what seems to be a contradiction. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I mean that on the one hand, you have this Politburo and the whole party structure based on uh, a pretty technocratic and meritocratic approach where you have this kind of collective Politburo where, which is able to uh, just get things done by getting the, the smartest people on board. And on the other hand, you have this increasingly personalized uh, leadership around Xi Jinping, uh, and that those things seem to run against a little bit against one another in terms of how the Chinese Party State presents itself in terms of you know who's it, who's actually in charge and why uh, why does it work when it works? Yeah, well, this is I mean this is a huge this is a separate episode really um, Very much to is. talk about how the, <laughs> how the Chinese state actually works. I mean that's the focus of a lot of my research at the moment and i think i think to to put it briefly i would say the image that we have in the west as often portrayed in the media that you know china is basically a one-man regime and that xi jinping calls all the shots takes all the important decisions you know knows everything plans everything i mean it it doesn't match onto reality it's not true actually in any uh, state or regime but it's certainly not true in a system as complex as as china um on really sort of major big ticket items, uh, she would be taking uh, key decisions. But that's after all the information and uh, recommendations and suggestions have been thoroughly, you know, debated and filtered and and so on. It's simply not possible for one person to take all the the major decisions um, governing society as complex as as China. Uh, So necessarily, um, political decision making control is uh, considerably fragmented and dispersed. You know the, the bodies that he's put himself at the head of, for example, um, are coordinating bodies. They're called leading small groups of the Politburo, the Central Committee, or the State Council in some cases. And these try to coordinate these vast range of different bodies that are involved in an area like health, for example. It's not just one ministry that's in charge of it. It's basically every part of the party state is now involved. So, you know, she will say, if, you know, all hands to the pump, let's sort this out. Uh, this is you know, no excuses for failure. Um, everybody needs to participate, even the military and so on. But what that means, you know, what each part of the party state is actually going to do will not be um, decided by him personally. You know, he's not going down to Wuhan and saying, oh, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. 
uh, it cascades down through this highly complex um, and sometimes, you know, very confused governance mm. system. Yeah, I mean, I'm um, sure that's pretty unique decisions... to most citizens as well, in terms of. Well, very exactly much so. Yeah, I mean, to, who's to blame for this if something goes wrong? Yeah, but I think in the, so there's that there's the reality of how the the Chinese party state works, which is that it still is this this quite um, fragmented system that is actually quite difficult to steer and turn around and deliver the objectives that you want. I mean, if you look at Xi's performance on economic reform, for example, um, it's been pretty uh, pretty lackluster, and the difficulty he's had even you know closing down. Um, polluting industries and stopping provincial governments spending on infrastructure and things like that. It's been very, very difficult. And these are some of his headline policies. Um, so I think, to be truthful, Chinese actual governance, the way the party state operates, has changed a lot less under him than the political theatre uh, and the political messaging Um and in some senses, the political reality, as opposed to the sort of governance and bureaucratic rea- reality of what China now is, which is a system that has, um, you know, used to operate on the basis of collective leadership. And that was the way that the system perpetuated itself and dealt with um, succession issues and so on, towards a system in which one person is held up as the, you know, a leader on, on a par with Mao and that his his thinking is enshrined in the constitution mm-hmm. of the Communist Party and um, you know, hero worship and a kind of ex- extraordinarily sycophantic approach um, yeah. towards him. Um, and also, I mean, he is genuinely popular, um, I think, as well. Uh, so on the political side, you know, there has been this enormous corruption clampdown, a climate of fear, uh, huge insistence on deference towards this uh, core leader um but that is so that's the political side of things is the reality of a much more centralized top-down uh, appearance of control but then you've that political aspect of things is then connected to this um rather unwieldy uh, party state bureaucratic structure that you actually need to activate in various ways to get things done and it's it's not as easy as just saying uh, solve this problem, or one person in the centre making all the decisions. But precisely because he's being talked up so much, when if things go wrong, then he will be connected with it because he's basically told everybody, you know, I'm in charge. Yeah, yeah. So that presumably is the reason why he has stepped back from it and tried not to put his own personal mark on things. He needs to be seen to be saying, you know. Uh, all hands to the pump and that kind of thing but uh, at one remove i think just in case this does go badly wrong um because the setbacks to other sort of signature policies that he's put forward like the belt and road initiative for example they reflect badly on him personally um and this is i think probably the most serious test of his leadership so far all right excellent stuff i think we will leave it there thank you very much lee a great pleasure